First Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the grounds that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. You can be seated as we pray. Father, use your word in exactly the ways we need, in the exact ways you intended. So together we ask for your Holy Spirit to be working in our hearts, opening hearts and minds, shaping us, transforming us, encouraging us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this Sunday is certainly an exciting Sunday. For one, it's Family Day weekend, which is wonderful. And then, of course, five baptisms today. And our sermon is on bond servants. I can feel a little bit maybe like preaching on the Levitical law on Christmas or Song of Solomon on Easter. I didn't, I didn't plan it this way, but I actually think that this passage has a lot to say about our particular occasion right now, and it'll be exciting to see that. I want to show you what this passage is doing, and you'll see that. The way I want to show you what this passage is doing is, is just looking at three principles from this passage. The first principle is kind of a, an assumed principle that is behind our passage, then the second principle is from verse 1, and the third principle from verse 2. So let's look at that first principle that's kind of assumed in this passage. As you read along, it's kind of surprising that bondservants are mentioned out of the blue here in 1 Timothy. Yes, there's a series of three different peoples we're to honor. So we're to honor widows, verses, chapter 5, verses 3 to 16. We're to honor the elders, chapter 5, verses 17 to 25. And now we're to honor our masters, 6, 1 and 2. But it's different, this section on bondservants. The first two related to how we relate within the church, and then this is just one group outside the church, how we're supposed to relate. And further, the honor in the first two occasions is speaking to how we provide for them and take care of them, including financially. Here, that's not what honor has in mind. So what is bondservants doing here in the flow of First Timothy? It's not unusual for the Bible to mention bondservants. Instructions to bondservants are given in the book of Ephesians, the book of Colossians, Titus, and 1 Peter, and also here in 1 Timothy. But in those other lists, bondservants is always mentioned in a sequence with a group of other people as we're trying to figure out how we relate. So maybe it'll be parents and children and, and husbands and wives and Bond servants and masters, or, or maybe it talks about all the different kinds of people we're to be submitting to, and it includes bond servants submitting to their masters. But here, it's just all by itself. There's no mention of Christian parenting, parents and children. There's no mention of, mention of husband and wives. M masters aren't even mentioned here. 
So, so what, is, what is this doing right here? Why is Paul addressing bondservants here? And I think the clue for us comes in verse 2. Because verse 2 brings to bear or brings an instruction that none of the other sections in bonds, about bondservants bring, bring to us. In verse 2, it talks about how Christian bondservant and Christian master are to relate to one another. Now, we're going to look more at verse 2 a little bit later. But clearly, there's a question in mind of, of how, are, how are Christians supposed to relate when they are bondservant and master? And that question, that concern is not raised in Ephesians. It's not raised in Colossians. It's not raised in Titus. And it's not raised in 1 Peter. It's raised only here. So there's something different going on. And that's why there's this assumption underneath this passage that makes sense of it. And it's assumption that's made explicit earlier before those three honors back in chapter 5 verses 1 and 2. You remember the sermon on that passage, perhaps. But it reads, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Here's how I'd state the principle. The gospel radically transforms relationships. The gospel radically transforms relationships. And particularly, it takes the relationships that we know and are used to and the outside structures of the world and reorients them around family. And that's the key principle, or that's, the, that's a key paradigm for the book of 1 Timothy. So back in chapters three, chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, which are kind of the epicenter of the book, it talks about this is how you're supposed to behave in the household of God. We are a family. You think of the world out there and how it structures everything. We have a very um, informal and uh, kind of intuitive structure. It's not like this caste system where you have all these different castes and you know exactly where you stand. But you still, you walk into a room, you walk into a group of people, and you have a sense of kind of where you stand and how you fit and how you're supposed to relate to different people. It could be something like geography. Am I a Newfie or a Toronto? Torontonian. There we go. Or it could be, you know, I'm single, I'm married family, not family. It could be I'm a mechanic or a banker or it could be, you know, there's a certain weight certain people have, uh, certain professions or a celebrity or a politician or something like that, right? There's, there's a sense of the pecking order. Goes goes beyond those categories. It gets into race. How long we've lived, say, in Georgetown. There's all sorts of ways we can parse it out, Right? But here's what the gospel does. It says all of you, no matter who you are, all of us are together in our rebellion against God, rejecting him as king and therefore sinners, uh, paupers, debtors. 
And God in his love came forward to rescue us rebels, sending forth his son who died on the cross to redeem us of our sin so that we could be made new, united as one new family in Christ. So that the the real relationships, the true relationships that we have are mother, father, brother, sister, and you could extend that parent-child. That is who we are as Christians. The mechanic and the banker are brothers. The European and the African are sisters. The single person and the married person Our siblings, the slave, and the master, our brothers. And it's that last point, it's that last point that gives rise to these two verses. How do we flesh that out? How do we understand that? But this undergirding principle that pulsates under verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6 and this section on bondservants is that the gospel radically transforms our relationships. And so for you five who were baptized this morning, what a beautiful thing that happened on family day weekend. I want you to remember that for the rest of your life. You were baptized on family day weekend because when you're baptized into Christ, you become family. It's a profound reality. It's something that lasts for eternity. It's interesting when we're in chapter 5, 1 and 2, we looked at some of Jesus' teachings on this. And Jesus talks about marriage in heaven and says, actually, that's not something for heaven. That's something just for earth. Which when you probe on that, it can be a little awkward. Like, you know, when you lose a loved one, you're like, I just can't, if they're in Christ, I just can't wait to get to heaven and be restored to a relationship with that person I love so much. And, but I'm not going to be married to them there? What are the relationships going to be like up there? The reality is, the deepest, most fulfilling familial relationship you have here will characterize all our relationships in heaven. I I don't know exactly how that all gets parsed out, if that's like something that grows over a few thousand years, or if it's just all instant. I, I don't know all that. But what I'm trying to draw our attention to, what our longing for in heaven shouldn't be just to be with that loved one. It should be to know that family relationship we get to have with every believer. That's what Jesus is pushing his disciples to understand. That's what 1 Timothy is holding out for us. We are an eternal household. This is it. There are a lot of things that try and divide us. Things that we disagree on. Think about going back over a decade in this church, over a decade ago, it might have been about pews and chairs. We had different opinions about that. Maybe a few years back, a difference of opinion about how we should handle expansion 
and a proposal from an expansion team. More recently, perhaps differences on staffing changes or differences on COVID protocol or differences on how we view a freedom convoy. It's all right in family to have differences of opinion on things like that. And we can't allow those types of wedges to take what God has united and tear us apart. We are brother and sister. We are mother and father and son and daughter. This is us. We should love each other and be committed to each other and bear with one another. And these radically transform relationships. That's principle number one. The gospel radically transforms our relationships. The second principle we get in verse one. And this is a principle that is not new to the Ephesians where Timothy pastored. Several years before, he'd written a letter Ephesians, and he'd address bond servants. Likely when Paul was there ministering amongst them, he'd address this. So he's reminding them of a principle they already know, and that is Christians honor their masters. Christians honor their masters. So let me read it. Let all who are under a yoke as bond servants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Now, it's probably helpful here to just pause and talk about what a bondservant is. I'm not sure that's a real intuitive thing for all of us. Back in the ancient world, slavery was pervasive. Pretty much all ancient societies and Everywhere you look, you found slavery. And, and slavery typically was, it, it was somebody who you owned, and you owned them for life, probably because they were either kidnapped, you went on a boat and took them away and brought them to be your slaves, or you conquered them. You conquer a people, you make them your slaves. This is somewhat like the slavery that we're used to learning about in more recent history, although I think the more recent one has even stronger racism at its root. This kind of slavery is strongly condemned in Scripture, and I think even in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, Paul specifically calls out enslavers, or those who steal people to be slaves. But by the time of Roman civilization, actually a lot of those kinds of slaveries had been regulated and eliminated. And there was a new form of slavery, or what we call a bondservant, to be able to distinguish it from that, that was taking place in the Roman Empire. And it was, uh, it was pervasive. It still involved owning somebody. They were your property. But it was typically voluntary. In the big cities, over a third of the population would have been bond servants. In a certain sense, they were the working class. They got a lot of things done. And, and there were reasons someone would willingly become someone's bond servant allowed a certain amount of upfront money. It also, notably, would allow for when you finished your term of being a bondservant to them, if they were a Roman citizen, you would be able to become a Roman citizen. So it's actually, there's a lot of incentive to do it. 
When you were committed to them, it was, it was a contractual relationship. You were committed that you were their property, but they had commitments to you that they had to provide for you, take care of you, make sure your needs and your family's needs were met. The bondservants in those days were not just the lowest class of society. In fact, some people became bondservants because there were certain elected offices you had to be a bondservant in order to hold. So you would tend to have the social class of whoever your master was. So it was a way up, a leg up for some people. So there were a lot of reasons people would do this. And after a certain term, you were released. You were free. So it was a very different kind of thing when we're talking about bond servants and the, the, the model there when the New Testament talks about bond servants. As I said, it's not a one-to-one correlation with kind of the working class today because there were people who were higher up and political leaders or things like that. But, but largely speaking, that might be the closest equivalent we could come to when we try and think of how do we flesh that out today. But the bottom line is that these bond servants were called to regard their masters with all honor. And that is something that is cuts against the grain of our culture today. There is, a, there is something in the air today that is anti-authority, distrustful of those in charge. But Christians, over and against that, should be defined as people who honor those who are over them. Oh, but you don't know what my boss is like. He's a real fill in the blank. Well, you're not a bond servant. You're not committed to them no matter how bad or good they are. You can leave your job, but as long as you're in that job, if a bond servant who's stuck with that person no matter how bad they are has to live with the, or has to honor their master, how much more should we be honoring those who are our masters or who are over us? That's what God calls us to do. You know, we as Christians can be a little, uh, sometimes we like to compare. That woman has a better husband than me. You have a much better boss than I do. I wish I was in that situation. And sometimes we can wonder, why why am I here? Is God punishing me by putting me here with these terrible authorities over me? Well, the end of verse 1 suggests maybe it's not because God's punishing you, but giving you an opportunity. An opportunity to show how real and good God is and how real and good the teaching, His gospel is. I'm a different person because of what God's done. And so even in the face of of bad authority, even in the face of imperfect authority, I can show honor. And that testifies that God is real and that his gospel is true because I'm enrooted in something that's bigger than this earth. You see that gospel heart, even in how bond servants relate to their masters?
you should behave with those authorities that are over you. I should behave with those authorities that are over me in such a way so people, they treat you so badly. Why are you honoring them? And then you know what you get to say? Because the Bible tells me to do that. I heard a sermon this week from 1 Timothy 6, and the pastor called us to honor authority. I should pause here. In a democratic society, the role of the Christian is an important role. And sometimes that role will involve protest. But even as there's protest and disagreements with a premier or a prime minister, they are also people in authority over us. So we should always regard them with honor, even when we disagree or protest against them. Which means it should never be a Christian sentiment to say, bleep the prime minister. Actually, Christians shouldn't say bleep at all but particularly not bleep the prime minister. It's no place on the lips of Christians. So here we are. Whatever place you're in, wherever you're at, I don't know what kind of situation you you see the analogy to the bondservant where there's an authority over you and you're called to hold them in, in high regard, but God has a gospel motivation for that. It's a call that we can testify to the reality of who he is and the reality of his gospel. Maybe you're here with us and you're not a follower of Christ. You hear this passage and it's telling you something. That there's a certain way Christians live that should testify to who their God is and that their gospel is real. Now we are not perfect people. I think you've heard that. We are people who... We're part of a rebellion. We know our need. We're, we're sinners saved by grace. You heard the testimonies today. We're not a perfect people, and we don't do this perfectly. And yet, by and large, as you watch Christians, true Bible-believing, born-again Christians, how they relate to authority, how we relate to authority, should tell you something. I'm not talking about who the news chooses to, you know, some extremists that they choose to highlight. I'm talking about real people that you know in this room. How we relate to authority should testify to you. So watch us. We'll do it imperfectly, but you should notice a difference that testifies to the gospel. So there's that second principle that Christians honor their masters. Now, the first principle and the second principle can come into a bit of tension. The gospel radically transforms our relationships so that these outside societal ways we relate to one another are undone and we relate to one another as family. And yet, Christians honor their masters. Well, that's a hard thing to... How do those fit together? So let's say the bondservant has been a Christian longer than the master. And he's a smart and capable man. And he's gifted by the Holy Spirit in certain ways. And he becomes an elder in the church. So that the bondservant is an elder in the church. And the master is part of the congregation. 
Or maybe the master has many bondservants and a few of them have become Christians. And so he is together in a church with a few of his bondservants, but there are other bondservants that aren't. Are, are they supposed to act differently? How do they relate out there in the, in the household or in the, the business that they have when their family in the church? And the principle in verse 2 resolves this for us by saying, and this is the principle, Christians honor Christian masters. Let me read it. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespected on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Now, this is not teaching that, you know, when you're doing work for unbelievers, you kind of do a B-plus job. And then when you're working for a Christian, you do an A-plus job. I think a better way to try and get after what this all the better means, like, let's say you're a, a chef. You want to make an A-plus meal for everyone who, attends, or who comes to your restaurant. But when you're given an opportunity to have friends and family over and you're making that same A-plus meal, there's just something different about your heart and how you approach that certain joy that comes from bringing them blessing. Or maybe you clean houses. You should be doing an A-plus job cleaning the house of all your clients. But then you're called upon, maybe with a few others from the church, to come and clean the house of some person who's going through a really hard time in your midst. It's not that you're going to do a better job of cleaning, but there's something different about how you do it in all the better sort of way because of the love and the, and the unity you feel. The fact that the gospel has radically transformed these relationships within the church does not mean that we give those believers a, a deficient amount of honor or, or work ethic, but rather we do it all the better. When we become Christians, we don't replace master with brother, but we add brother to master. Does that make sense? So there's the world and how it functions. And when God saves us, he calls us out of that world to be this new and distinct community, a community that will exist into eternity, and the relationships are transformed there. But we still live in this world out here. And we function even as brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers. We function within those structures as God has ordained them. Now you might feel like, really is that so important to put verse 2 in there? I actually wasn't really grappling with that question. I, did, I wasn't wondering if I need to relate to my Christian boss differently than I need to relate to my secular boss. I don't think it's a question most of us ask, and it's not a question I've asked. But I think that's actually a, a revealing, I think it's revealing about our hearts. I think it reveals that we actually don't grasp how radically reorienting our relationships should be. If we understood and grasped what's being put forward in 1 Timothy about a household of God and how we're to relate as family we understood how transformative that would be, I think maybe we would be asking the questions 
How does that transform my relationship when I'm working out here? But we just kind of sell it short. It doesn't carry the weight maybe it ought to carry. And so that's something that I would press us to really grapple with. Not only are we being called to honor, honor those in authority, honor masters, it's a pervasive call throughout Scripture, it's a defining mark of God's people, but also this idea that we are erratically reoriented in our relationships, that we are family, despite our differences, despite things that I'm loyal to this cause or I'm part of this group and it wants to fracture us. No, we stay together. The gospel radically transforms relationships. Nonetheless, Christians honor masters and how we put those together, Christians honor Christian masters. So I said, this passage actually has so much to say for us today. What does it say for new believers? People who have been baptized in front of us. Or maybe you who have been baptized recently or found faith recently. It's a reminder that as you come into Christ, this is your family. The church is this eternally bonded relational group. And we're called to live and the world out there in a way that brings honor to the name of God and to the teaching of God. Including in how we honor those in authority over us. What about on family day weekend? Does bond servants have to do with that? I think you've seen. This passage is, is, is hinting at or pointing to the fact that our, our relationships are transformed, that yes, there's something right and good. God created the family as the first structure of society. It was the, the, build, the beginning of the building block, and yet it was just a shadow of what we'll have eternally, the truer family that those who are in Christ experience, so that the families, if we have good families here on this earth, they're only pointing forward to something better. And if we've had hard families here on this earth, that longing for something good is actually a longing for something only Christ can provide. So family day weekend should always be pointing us to our eternal family. And even in our cultural moment right now, a reminder that even as we protest or disagree with those in authority over us, we regard them with all honor. I didn't plan to have 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2 before us. I guess I did, but I didn't sequence it. I didn't know how it would all work. But it's what he has before us. And as the culture around us blows in the wind, and when the wind intensifies or suddenly shifts, the culture can feel just how unmoored they are. And it's destabilizing, and it's hard to know how to step and how to walk. We as Christians, in a certain act of faithful defiance, gather as believers and say, we are tied to Scripture. We are tethered to Christ 
who does not sit here on earth, but sits enthroned in heaven over it all, looking down on the affairs of men, managing it all in his own way. We sit tethered to the gospel. We're secure no matter how the winds blow because as was testified so beautifully, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Nothing is going to separate us from that love and so we're stable no matter what anxieties or stresses might come. Right? We are tethered to the impregnable rock of holy scripture. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage that speaks powerfully to us. And thank you that we are a people who are moored when much around us feels unmoored. Stabilize us again as we sing these songs, as we hear this word read, as we pray, as we hear the gospel and see how it's transformed lives. Stabilize us amidst the, the constant din around us. In Jesus' name, amen.